Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to the final edition of The End Game for 2022 and what a year it's been. With me the whole way through this crazy ride has been my main man, my partner in crime, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I am doing just fine. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We've got a guest that we've both been circling for a while. Who's, uh, we finally made the calendars line up, and I'm, I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk to Mike Taylor. So am I. So why don't we uh, get rolling? Hey, let's do it. So, Mike, welcome to The Endgame. It's a great pleasure for both of us to have you join us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Let me ask you a question. Because you had this sort of epiphany around 2010 or 11 about how the the crowd that had to look at the benchmarks and how all that mattered, do you think that some of what's worked in the last decade was exacerbated by QE? And that's maybe why some of the guys who previously had done better didn't do well in the QE environment because it was so different. And now we've trained a generation or so of people in that environment that they think they know how things work when what they've learned is how an anomaly works and not really how investing works. Do you think that muddied it in some way? That is an unbelievably great point. And a big reason why I came into this year more bearish or more short than I've ever been in my career by a country mile. This was the worst setup I've ever seen. And a crucial element to that is that we have six, seven, eight years of PMs now that think that they're experienced and they've only had one market and they don't know it. And they just found out. And this is why you have so many hedge funds down 50% year on year. I mean, just ungodly numbers, horrible. And, and by the way, most of them haven't been redeemed yet. And that's what's going to start in the one half of next year in my view. What's been fascinating to watch this year is the Cathie Wood arc phenomenon. You know, here's someone who has seen the ETF, that ARKK, fall, what, 85%? That's right. And has had constant, constant inflows the entire time, right? They've now, I think it's just started to plateau now, that the inflows. But where does that kind of phenomenon fit in to the things you've uncovered and discovered? Wow, that's a really, really great question. Well, in every single bubble, there, as I like to say, and you'll remember this, in every single bubble market, there's a Bill Miller. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she was the Bill Miller of this market. And I've said it many, it's many a great times. Way to she say was it. it. She's the Bill Miller. And Bill Miller's fund went down 90%. And I keep saying to myself, my limit on Kathy Wood is when she's down 90%. And you just stated that she's near there. Here's the problem. Bill Miller actually had a lot of companies in his portfolio that were going to make it. Many did. But he had many that were going to make it. Kathy literally has 80% of her names that are probably going to go to zero. They are totally non-viable businesses. So how is this bubble so much bigger than the Bill Miller bubble? And it's actually not that difficult to figure out. It's quantitative easing. It was free money to provide uh, fundraising for growth in a business that is not profitable at all. And she owns all of them. And now that you can't raise money to get more clicks, 
it's over. And now you're never going to be profitable and it's night, night. And I go through her book and it's name after I'm literally, I think this, this whiteboard right here, I got a whole bunch of her names on there that, that are going to go to zero. And uh, I've never seen, this is a product of Q quantitative easing is that I come into this year uh, bearish, but in a different way than last year, last year was everything bearish. Uh, This year I can be more selective because I think that there are, more publicly traded names this year that will go to zero than than I've ever seen before by a factor of 10. I mean, I literally have two dozen names off the top of my head where I have no idea how they don't go to zero this year. They cannot raise money. They have debt. They don't have a business that's a business. And it, it literally has to go to zero because M2 is negative. That's why. M2 is now negative and unless we sequentially negative and I've never seen this before. And unless we have a tidal wave of new debt issuance in order to keep the musical chairs going, as you know, our economy grows based upon new debt being issued and that's not happening. It's going in the reverse. So I have no idea how these companies make it and I've never seen anything like it before. I might use that as a segue to kind of make a jump shift to the sort of the macro level, because you've made the statement something to the effect of the central banks exist to make the treasuries or the governments look viable, profitable or solvent. I don't know how you said it exactly. Okay, solvent. So we're heading into 23 in a way where we have the central banks all upside down and blowing holes in their balance sheets, depending on if they mark to market it. So we have a situation where the central banks have put themselves in a position where you don't have to be very skeptical, look very hard to see, wow, these entities that even though they have printing presses are functionally about to be bankrupt. And yet they're supporting the governments that are basically in the same position after the wild spending spree they went on in the last few years. So we're going to have a situation where the central banks' balance sheets are going to be exposed for huge problems at a moment in time where these governments are all going to start having pressure from rising interest rates. And that makes for a pretty nasty mix. How do you think that plays out from a macro standpoint, particularly with your perspective that the central bank's job is to make the government look solvent, and now they're, it's gonna be easy to see they're both broke? I have a son, he's 15 years old, and he's been sitting on my knee trading stocks since he could sit on my knee and asking questions and things of that sort and analyzing data. And one thing that I've learned especially in the past three years of interacting with so many new investors, new to me, that I've never interacted with, thousands upon thousands, is that the vast majority of individuals believe what they are told. And I am a, I am a scientist. And I have been lied to for 20 years by everyone, because this is what they do. They, they fudge the science, they doctor it up, and they try to spin it and lie to you. And my job was to go through it and figure out what's really going on and did it successfully. Most are not good at looking at raw data. They don't want to look at raw data. It's boring. It's painful uh, for most. And they can't sit there for 10 hours and go through data and say, hmm, aha, aha, aha. They'd rather simply believe the dogma of what they're told. And it's a lot easier because everyone's telling you the same thing on CNBC. And this is what central banks have done to us. 
They've been lying to us the whole time, because if you look at what they do rather than what their mandates are and simply watch the uh, the press conferences and put it on mute. And look at the numbers and then look at their body language and what they're doing, you can start over time to figure out what they're doing. And then now we're at an amazing moment in history where it's clear, for instance, Japan. Look, every central bank has the same mandate, essentially. Right. It's to get the politicians reelected. That's that's really the thing. So it's unemployment or it's it's growth or it's inflation or it's price stability, which can mean anything that you want it to mean. But really, when you take a look back and you say, well, what are they really doing? Japan is the greatest example ever of they're lying to you and you don't care where they, they their mandate, their goal stated for years with full employment was, well, it doesn't matter we have full employment. We need inflation. We really need inflation. That's what we want. We want inflation. And then they got it. And my prediction was, and very publicly so, when this happens, Corona is going to turn around and print more. Totally contrary to everything that he was saying. And what their goals were. And that's exactly what happened. And the reason why they were printing more is because of yield curve control. And that they're already past the hump. They can't have a market. Their, their, their goal is to basically uh, smolder uh, inflation and make uh, the masses poor slowly. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case is, is that it's pitchforks and torches on the lawn of the central bank. Which right. which may eventually, which probably will eventually happen in Japan. Uh, but this was the perfect example of, yeah, this is what they've been telling you for years. They'd have full employment and they'd still be printing and printing and printing because it wasn't good enough. Well, the reality is as to why it wasn't good enough. And I'll tell you now, it's really simple. The amount of money going into savings and into the stock market and into bonds turn negative organically because they have too many people retiring and not enough people putting in. And stocks only go up if there's more people to buy tomorrow than there were today. That's how they go up or they're distributing more cash. And it was exactly the opposite in Japan where it was impossible. And so this is why they're buying stocks in Japan nonstop. And now the central bank is a top holder of most of the stocks in the Nikkei or just about there. And and they will become the largest shareholder in all the names in the Nikkei because they cannot stop. The moment that they pause, stocks implode because the withdrawals from uh, retirees is more than the organic money coming in. So they have to make up a goddamn story to make the to to explain why they're doing it. And they say, well, it's inflation. We're not there yet. Now they got inflation. Now they printed more. So it's contrary to everything they're saying. And so now it's the ruse has been exposed. You're, you're, you've been lying to everybody. It is simply to keep the Treasury solvent. And the ECB is the same thing, and so is the U.S., and that's it, and that's their job. So just plan accordingly. And so I know you're going to have a follow-up question, and I have a huge statement to talk about what the Fed has to do and and I'm why I'm terrified this year of what might happen. Okay, I got to ask uh, one follow-up question. Like Greg. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, this has been my hobby horse for so long. I know, I know, I know. That's why I'm giving you seed and ground. Uh, Mike, but <laughs> on every episode of this, we've done like 40 of them. One of my Here questions was always, was always, how is this going to play out in Japan? And now it's playing out. So 
we got a new guy coming in in March. So the question is, obviously, Corona's going to keep moving the goalposts and keep YCC, I would gather, ad infinitum. But in March, we get a new guy. So you think the new guy is going to just keep sliding the goalposts and they'll be doing YCC at incrementally higher numbers the whole way? Or do you think, well, it doesn't sound like they can bite the bullet when, when you look at it from your perspective. Well, I mean, actually what I thought, and, and uh, I, I was actually, this was part of my big call because I thought it would happen in Japan in January. But a uh, new guy is different than old guy. And he wants some flexibility and he wants to actually reduce the yield curve control. Maybe so you can put it back on again later and stimulate in any way. But it didn't matter. And I said, that's what's going to come out in January and nobody sees this coming. And I've got into the new year, I've got to get massively long yen. The yen, yeah. And then, and now you know it's all orchestrated because Corota comes out and does it for them, knowing the new guy is going to do it even more. Right. And they threw him politically under the bus on his way out. And I was thinking to myself, as soon as I saw that, so you know new guy and Corota are talking and new guy has a new plan, whatever the hell it is. But you can see right clearly that, oh, Corona is going to take the fall for this. No, this is all centrally planned. The government and the central bank in Japan are the same thing, just like yeah. they have one political party. You know, it's just like China, just without a police state, meaning in how they run the economy. They are the kingmaker. They, and, and it's easy to be the kingmaker when you're running such incredible deficits and doling out money constantly to the economy. So and there's a there, this we're at the price the point where the price to pay is happening, and, right. and and that's I mean that's clear that's that when you have your currency move thirty five percent in a year, I mean wow, it's like the only good news for Japan is that demographically China isn't much different and neither is Europe uh, within the next ten years, so that's the good news for Japan and I think that the central banks plan when they sit down all together is how are we going to cook this toad slowly? Because the best case is, is that they you really all think those perpetually- guys, sorry, I got to interrupt. Do you, do you really think these, those guys are that smart to, to sit Oh my God, and- that is such a great question. And Mike Green and I have this all the time because he thinks, no, Mike, you don't understand. They're just idiots. They actually believe their dual mandate and a meaning in the U S and I, when I look at the evidence and I skip the words and you just look at the evidence, it has been so unbelievably consistent and predictable in what they're going to do in order to save the government over and over and over again, that they can't be that dumb. They just can't be that dumb. Hey, and by the way, the entire thing, the entire thing is run by one guy. Draghi, it's not you, is it? Oh, Draghi, okay, do you remember? Do you remember Draghi when we found out at the very end that they don't even hold a vote? We found that at the end. They're like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's what Draghi's doing. I didn't know that. And these are like voting members and they had no idea what was going to happen. You just dropped the script. And so and it's the same thing at the Fed and it's the same thing in Japan. All these other people voting. It's all verbal diarrhea. Yellen. Yellen came out at the, after her tenure and was and said in an interview uh, questioning about the Fed minutes. And she said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. The Fed minutes are a communication tool. She said that. Yeah. It's not the minutes of the meeting. It's a no. doctored up statement to right. bend the view of the market. 
So the minutes are nonsense. It's just to fool everybody. So you take a look at all the evidence over and over and over again and stuff that sneaks out over time. And you, you come to the conclusion that it is literally a one man show in every single place. And I don't care what they say. That's what it is, because that's that's what I, the evidence points to that. And here it is. And this is what I do. I look at what the evidence points to, especially in this case, I get a very long time to look at it and they're lying to everybody. And their singular job is to keep the treasury looking solvent. That's it. And it's yeah, kind of yeah. sad. But, and are they that smart? Well, somebody is. And I don't know yeah. if it's them, but somebody who's actually telling them what to do and guiding whoever the hell that is, or if it's a collective. And I don't mean a conspiracy cabal, meaning that collective of uh, of insight and words and stuff could be shifting around. It's Citadel, it's Blackstone, it's Blackrock. And I'm not castigating any of these right. members. Their job is to influence the Fed. This is what they need and want to do. Mike, there's so much in that. And I'm reading... Um the Lords of Easy Money uh, recently, which was a fantastic book. And, you know, Tom Honig laid out exactly what you said there, right? He, he laid it bare that it's a one-man show and everyone has to agree with the chair of the FOMC. It's, that's just the way it works. But, but before we get to the Fed, because I really want to talk about that, there's plenty more to say. I want to stick on this Japan thing for a minute because, as, as Bill said, we've had Japan as the likely canary in the endgame coal mine from day one of this thing. We've both looked at it the same way you have and seen them in the same situation. And so I'm curious because you're right, this has been very coordinated. They've all gotten together and done the right thing for them to make sure the government stays solvent. And the market has done nothing about it because, of course, what they needed to do was fantastic for markets, right? It sent asset prices everywhere through the sky. It was a really easy thing to follow. And so there was no resistance in this whole don't fight the Fed stuff. Uh, you, can, you can understand it. Right. <laughs> and now things are very, very, very different. And so not just are they different in terms of the situation each of these individuals is in within their own country, but them as a collective, because suddenly the ammunition, even if they pull their ammunition with the problems they have to face, it creates bigger problems. So it's kind of an every man for himself situation, but they all realize that we have to kind of stay together. But you're starting to see now them kind of pulling away, like the Blue Angels. They're starting, you know, they come across all in formation. Now you're starting to see some of them pull away. Do you think that that's the way it's going? Because my belief is that domestic always trumps international and, and we are at the point where it's, look, I either save my own citizens, which is what the Fed's clearly doing, or I play the game and I jump mm -hmm. in with everybody else and we all come together. Are we at that stage yet, do you think? Now, your audience might get you wrong in what you're saying. I need to save my own citizens because their translation yeah, okay, okay. is if you yeah, if you ask right. Ross right. Gerber what that means, it means <laughs> it means a pivot yesterday. And well, I think no, he, no, you have meaning, to look up the, the words first, those yeah. two syllable words. I think that what you may be meaning is that they're actually saving the citizens by cratering the economy. And I don't know where you are on the camp. We've never talked before. Thank you for having me, by the way. But I believe, and I'm looking at the analysis, the math, and it's simple math. It goes right back to the Treasury. Bill Clinton balanced the budget because he's a genius. He's a financial wizard. And, he's, and, and, the, and the ladies love him. But how he did it, was moving the entire duration down to one to four years and mostly one to three years. 
So that means that <laughs> that means that the U.S. Treasury has a floating ninja loan. Okay. <laughs> and it was a great idea then, and it's a terrible idea now. And there's nothing they can do about it. And folks, what this ninja loan means to the U.S. government is that like over 70% of the entire national debt is financed within three years. And it's more than that, but I'll just say 70. And about 15% of tax receipts are used to pay the coupon on that debt. And a funny thing happened over the inflation trough is that the cost of that debt just went from 1.6, 1.7% or less to four and a half. And it might go higher. So what that means is that if interest rates stay here for two and a half years, hell, two years, we're going to see an absolute Armageddon explosion in the cost of carrying that debt for the Treasury. Yep. Well, rule number one, Fed's job is to make the Treasury look solvent. One year, you can almost get away with it. We're up, one year's up, over one year's up. Now, he has to crash the economy to get the short end, where all the money's owed, down to two. And he's got one tool to do it. And it's tightening. Yep. That's it. And, and, and at the same time, he's livid. Because Biden, you know, gets through multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages all the time because this is what they do. While he's trying to starve them from doing it, they do it anyway. That was probably the last one. And, and next year, we're going to start running into a funding problem, uh, the government level, meaning the coupons are actually going to start to eat in. And you'll see it because they're not thinking about it, but they will think about it because they have to. And so what I, I, how I think it plays out is that the Fed is going to tank the economy nasty. And I think it's, we're going to see it materially in the I need my money back. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I need my money back in one half. And right. we're going to see it first in all these private equity uh, investments that have exploded over the past decade where everyone's in it. And they're going to find out. And I believe it's going to start in January. They're going to find out that they can't get their money back because they didn't read the fine print because nobody reads the fine print. Nope. And we're going to have a collateral call, the beginning of a cascading collateral call starting in one queue. And I think it's probably in the first two weeks of Jan. And that's my big bet that we're going to see the gates go up and go up and go up. And this is what, believe it or not, the Fed wants because it allows the, the real economy to crash and interest rates to go back down because, and he has to do it. And this is a debate that Green and I have because Green apparently, and I love Green. He 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 said, well, it doesn't really matter. They're just engaging yield, cur yield curve control. That's what they'll do. They'll pivot and they'll do yield curve control to get us out of it. And I said, he might do it, but there'll be an incredible cost when he does it. Once you start that, for a, for a yeah. government debt that has 40 plus percent of the buyers of that debt, OUS, you will lose their those investors forever as you engage in yield curve control. The dollar will tank because of it. And you'll actually see, then you really can't get out of yield curve control because you actually have organic inflation in the form of a, of a deteriorating currency. You change the flows of that currency, which is terrible, you're vertically integrating all this money, much like Japan and the others with yield curve control. 
And because of that, you will not be able to afford your military. And if you think about what the United States is, our military, everyone said we're the police. You know, we're making sure the world flies straight. We're the good guys. We're not. <laughs> we're the contract police. We run around with ships enforcing contracts, right? That's how it works. And, and war is enforcing contracts. You know, you're lying. You're cheating. We're going to pressure you militarily. And now you're going to honor your contracts. And that's how I view it. So that that's my biggest fear is that we do start to have a credit problem in the front half of this year. And I see, don't understand how it's it's, it's impossible. Just looking at M2, it has to happen. Uh, that the Fed pivots too early. Political pressure, maybe he's not as smart as we think. And he pivots in like May. And that pivot is probably going to result in an unbelievable rip-roaring uh, stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we don't actually have that big, nasty recession yet. So if he pivots well before that big, nasty recession, uh, we're going to and, and how this is going to be manifest is uh, a product of the woke economy. The woke economy is you're not allowed to build new mines. You're not allowed to drill for energy. You don't need any of that. And I have no idea how these people defied logic for so long. But now we're paying the price. And the price will be that the input costs, if we have an early pivot, are going to go through the roof very quickly. And so we're going to have inflation returning if he pivots very quickly in 24. And so now you've basically guaranteed that the government isn't going to be able to fund itself at an appropriate interest rate. And so the Fed will then be pushed into either a Volcker-like event, which I think won't happen because we now know that the Fed doesn't actually know what they're doing at all. Um, or yield curve control, which in the short term will be far easier to digest than what a, a Volcker event would be. And maybe that's what we'll do. that's my biggest fear, because then we have enormous sociopolitical monetary inflation problems for the foreseeable future. When I say the foreseeable future, like the rest of my life. Right. I don't know how we get out of it. Yeah, and, right. and this is a big product of how I've made my performance for 20 years is that I look for things that I don't understand how this isn't successful or I don't understand how this is going to fail, meaning it must fail. It can't be successful. And those are the things that have made promulgated my returns over 20 years. And I'm looking at the Fed like this and I'm... I, I, I see the only success is that they tank the economy. We go into six, seven percent jobless rates. They pivot in front of that, but we still have a real old-fashioned credit crisis. The excesses get wiped out. Interest rates go do go down with a lot of victims and a lot of bodies. But at that point in time, the government now can fund itself right. for the great foreseeable future. And so he's effectively kicked the can down the road, and we might get another decade out before we run into the pro- any problems. So that's my, that's my hope. I think there are going to be people listening to that. And when they hear you say you think the Fed's going to pivot early in May, I think there are people sitting there going, wait, what? May is early? I think there are a lot of people that think that pivot, quote unquote, has to come Q1. I think you're right. I think they will push this thing further than people think. And if they do, the chance of getting past Q1 and people suddenly go, abandon hope all you enter here and the Fed's never going to pivot, you know, we could get into the pivot. We could see people start to 
hurriedly divest themselves of assets, which on top of that collateral call, and I want to talk more about that collateral call, because that to me is the real problem here, could cause a real cascade. Let me just embellish Grant's question and let you take it away, Mike. If you look at the kinds of scenarios where we have gates and the pressure that causes in credit land, and you look at the nascent burgeoning credit problems that seem to be just a skosh beneath the surface, it occurs to me that we could have market-related or oriented credit kinds of problems that get worse way faster than the economy deteriorates and in my opinion, if that happens, the Fed would respond to the credit stuff. They'd get more scared about that, and they'd, they'd make up whatever they needed to about the economy, in my opinion. So I'd like to know if you think the credit stuff could get bad enough to kind of trump the economy or how you see that playing out. Well, I think the first leg, uh, we're, we're, the first leg is going to be I want my money back and you can't have it. That's right. The first leg. Right. OK. Uh, the leverage loan market and on and on. I mean, a real shadow banking event has happened, you know. Right. Largest. Look, the, the largest homeowner in America is an investment vehicle. So and, and people cannot get their money out of it. And we'll find out next quarter uh, how bad that is. And then in a lot of these credit products, people cannot get their money out. Uh, in any timely fashion. When they thought they did, they just didn't read the fine print. And honestly, because of uh, quantitative easing, they needed the returns. And and so they went way, way, way out the risk curve and now into a place where they're terribly illiquid. And so they're going to have to find that liquidity. And unfortunately, it's going to be stocks and everything else. But it'll be stocks in my view, which I'm worried about. So, but will the Fed, the, the Fed, I, I actually... I disagree on um, the Fed responding to the credit. I don't, I hope they don't, not because I'm short. Right, no, I know. Not because I'm short. I hope they don't, because if they do, then I know that they're literally just running around in circles and they absolutely don't have a plan and they're going to do whatever uh, feels good. Now, the reason why I think they are going to not pivot until at best year end is because they've done what they've done so far and they did slow play it but i think they slow played it coming into the year meaning that we're going to do quantitative tightening but not exactly yet and not exactly now and not exactly how much you think we're going to do and they slow played it as long as they could and i believe that that had a lot to do with uh all of um, Powell's buddies on the uh, on the board getting ejected one by one for an investigation that would ping one, ping another, the next one. And these were all shots uh, across the bow from the White House saying, you're going to do my bidding or you're not going to be the guy. And that's it. And so he did his bidding into the election. And as soon as the election or around the election hitting, that's when all the quantitative tightening hit. And they because he, he slow played it for as long as he possibly could. Mike, is this a case of how high they can get rates or how long they can hold them up there? Duration. He doesn't have and to get them up. That's more important, right? Oh, I mean, I think we're going to be at, you know, five, five and a quarter, five and a quarter. I think that Jan's going to be the last hike. 
we are not going to have another hike. But they have to hold that line, right? Yes, yes. And they they have to hold that line for a long time. Remember how they pivot, how the Fed will pivot. The Fed's going to pivot by ending quantitative tightening first. Yeah, yeah, right. Then it'll be rates. Right. So and people don't understand that you need the lower rate. That's not what's going to happen. Right. And I don't understand why these brilliant people on CNBC don't see that. It's very obvious. All they talk about is rates. And I suppose that's easy to understand for the public because they don't understand what quantitative tightening means. Well, they didn't understand quantitative easing and what it did for them. So they're certainly not going to understand the reciprocal of that. So you have to get back to the IQ 100. And that's really how you have to formulate uh, the message and try to you're really trying to attract those masses uh, on on the message. And so we're going to keep talking about interest rates, but that's not what really is going to happen. It's going to be quantitative tightening that will end first. Uh, and that's how I think they pivot uh, in lowering that. And I don't think that happens until year end, uh, until we're well and good into uh, jobless rates going up, uh, credit a lot of credit problems. People can't get their money back. And really what all this points to is, oh, such a relief. The federal government's going to be able to fund itself. And that's really the goal here. Always the goal here. So, Mike, let me come back to the yield curve control discussion. because It's such an important one to have, I think, particularly now, because, you know, and I've, and I've listened to you and Mike go back with some forwards about it. You know, we have, forget even going back to the 1950s, we have two very recent examples of this that we can look at, right? And the first is Japan and what they've done with it for the longest period of time. And of course, the problem with Japan is just the way their bond market works, who owns them. There are so many factors involved in that Japan setup for Yuko control that are completely different to just about everywhere else, certainly every other major central bank in the world, right? Which allows them to get away with that for the period of time they did. Mm -hmm. But Japan has been the example that's been held up at so many periods over the last 20 years. Well, Japan's done it and they got away with it. So it's okay if the US does low rates and negative rates and Europe and because look at Japan, right? Which has always been so ridiculous in my book. But as I said, it suited everybody to go along with that because they all knew asset prices were going to go higher. And then you have the RBA down in Australia who did the same thing, right? They did this yield curve control on the three-year, which is where most of their fixed mortgages are. They stepped in. They said, here's where the band is going to be. And they got chased out of it in pretty short order. The numbers didn't add up because they're not the kind of central bank that Japan is and they're certainly not the kind of central bank that the Fed is. And we saw they get chased out of this thing. We saw exactly what happens when a yield curve breaks, right? The uh, control breaks. We saw the, the, the yield triple in literally two or three trading days. The currency get destroyed. So where is the US? Because you would think they're the two extremes. Yeah, you can do it for as long as you like and eventually it'll become a problem. And mm-hmm. yeah, you can try it for about a year and then you're screwed either way. Where is the Fed in this? Because you would think they'd be closer to the Japan end, but there's a part of me that believes no. Well, think of Japan as the freeloader, okay? They're the freeloader. There's two things I'll point out. The freeloader. And the whole freeloader works as long as there's only one. But if everyone's a freeloader, it's a total unattainable catastrophe. That's number one. And that's obvious. That's easy. What's not so obvious is productivity. And there is a huge price to pay for uh, very easy, permanent government funding. And it is productivity. So in Japan, what's the GDP going to be? Don't even tell me. I'll tell you. Whatever the GDP is going to be next year is exactly what the federal government says it's going to be based upon how much more they're going to spend. And I'll tell you a dirty secret, which is well known of anyone who looks at raw data, 
is that for over 10 years, the U.S. has been the same overspending in order to dial in what our GDP is going to be. And a funny thing happened along that way. The greatest example is China, where the government, the industry, everything is the central bank and the Politburo, right? There is no bank in Japan that is an independent bank. China engages in de facto permanent quantitative easing, and they do so by banks issuing loans to uh, insolvent companies and the government just giving them more and more and more length for more and more and more insolvent loans. You know, their, their bad debt is astonishing and it will never, ever be recognized. That is quantitative easing. They're just doing it through a way that we don't recognize. They're pouring money into the economy constantly. But as a consequence of doing this as a government, you become the kingmaker. You say, Ant Financial, you go away. Baba, you good, you bad. Oh, we're now going to make uh, chips because chips are the future. We're doing a huge government, all banks involved, all hands on board. We're going to make computer chips now. That's it. And when you become the kingmaker and you start determining what's a winner and a loser in an economy, just like Japan, just like China, productivity implodes. Because you... The whole thing about a command economy is that producti productivity implodes. And we have example, in fact, every single uh, command economy ever in history has imploded because of misallocation of capital. That's how they blow up. That's why they blow up. And you're seeing it in the U.S. as the government becomes more and more and more involved. Of course, productivity blows up because they're the king. Hey, everything's ESG. Right. That's what we're going to fund. We're going to change everything. Well, guess what happens now? Nobody has energy. So what happens to productivity? It implodes. Europe, you know, total green basket case. China, in, you know, command economy. It's going to be a basket case with all misallocation of capital. And Japan is the one that is um, kind of one, let's say, the longest term example of a de facto command economy where the government chooses where all the money is going in because the government chooses how much the economy grows by issuing debt at zero. So and that's what we're running into right here is that sort of end game where the government, if the government's going to continue doing what they're doing and engaging yield curve control, productivity and misallocation is of capital is just going to go through the roof. And there isn't really an easy political escape because the only escape is cleansing. And cleansing is, you know, people lose elections when that happens. So that's my sincere hope about our Fed is that they actually allow a cleansing uh, so that they don't have to bring us down the path of we're all Japan. Because in the environment that we've had so far, the Japanese freeloader on the system has worked. It's it's created an incredible carry trade and on and on and on for people with assets to get rich. But you can't have two and then three and everyone being a freeloader. And that's that's what I'm really worried about. I'm terribly worried. You don't I need to emphasize how unbelievably worried I am about the long term U.S. and global economy if the Fed pivots too soon. And, and don't worry, I'll make a fortune. All right. Yeah, I know. I'll turn long. I'll know what to do. I know how to put the trades on because I know what they're going to do and I'll see it and I'll, I'll know exactly how to trade it. And in my gut, I will feel terribly awful because my son's future is totally screwed. Yep. Well, that's the ugly part of all of this. When 
all of the central banks, G7, if you will, are all in the same boat. They're just in various different stages because we can talk about the Bank of England and we can talk about the ECB. And so w- when I think about collectively all these guys facing the same thing, the chances that things don't get bad enough, at least from a financial and credit standpoint, faster than people think seems to be small. So I think the pressure on the Fed is liable to get very intense. I don't know whether it takes till March or whatever, but sometime in Q1, I think a lot of these dominoes are going to start tipping on each other. And, you know, I don't know how hell will break loose, but I don't see if that happens. Based on my watching of the Fed for my career, how they'll have the courage to do what they need to do because they've never had the courage to do that before since Volcker. And then we'd already had a decade of putting up CapEx and the debt to GDP was about a third of what it is today. So even if Volcker was here today, he'd have a hard time doing what he did then. At least that's what I think. So you can say that again, because it's one of the most important points you could possibly say is debt to GDP and the parabolic explosion of that over the past 10 years. It is epic. And and, and it's another thing that people don't talk about, because when we were going through our merry period of a QE solves everything and NERP and ZERP, people were just, you know, they'd taken drugs, they'd gotten high, they decided that bad shit never happened ever again, and they didn't worry about any of these things. Meanwhile, we were kind of on borrowed time, and now we escalated it because they got the Social Security trust fund problems are now going to flip. So the financial burden that's like not very far away is enormous, and I see it discussed almost never. Well, I view it that the Powell has until the end of his tenure. Um, I hope that he does the right thing because either way, he's gonzo. Okay. And I hope that he clears the deck the best that he can to set America on a stronger trajectory. And, and, and really it comes down to organically getting the short end of the yield curve down materially. And if he has to do it through yield curve control, it will ruin us for generations. So, and I'm terrified of it. And by the way, this is exactly what China wants us to do. Exactly what they want us to do. To to make a fatal, terrible mistake. And I, I given that the Fed has tried so well, to a degree, to do this the right way and not engage immediately in yield curve control in order to finance the government. It makes me believe that, look, he's screwed, right? His legacy is screwed. If he if he pivots wrong and inflation comes back again, and then he gets fired, he has the worst legacy you could possibly imagine. If he drills the economy into oblivion, but saves the treasury and its financing, yes, the public may not like him, but everybody at the treasury will hold him in the highest regard for an eternity. And that's his crew. Right. I mean, this is the Volcker conundrum just written differently, right? Because same thing, at the time he was an absolute pariah, 20 years later, everyone holds him up to be the guy who did the hard thing and saved. But I think we can all agree that there are no good outcomes here, right? There is no outcome that doesn't involve an awful lot of pain because at this point, even up in the morphine isn't really going to help anything. It's just going to make it worse. It's just when. Right, exactly right. So, Mike, what do you make of the recent apology by the Australian Central Bank 
Governor Philip Lowe, to people who'd gone out and listened to him. As he said, we're sorry people listened to me and when we told them rates weren't going to rise till 2024 and they've borrowed money and got mortgages, we're really sorry they did that and we're sorry it worked out that way. And I think New Zealand has followed suit. What do you make of that? Because that's the first sign I've seen anywhere of any kind of public recognition that the situation we're in now, the fault of it lies squarely with the decisions made by central bankers over the last 20 years. And I was going to say two decades. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Two decades because they're all in on it. Yeah. You know, they were all involved monetarily in the housing bubble that never could possibly end. And, and, and I mean, the beginning of it ending was that not enough Chinese could uh, launder their money out. You know, she began the ending of that as vertically integrating everything and not allowing the money out as much. So I think that, that for Australia, this is the beginning of 20 years of excess having a reckoning. And the politicians now know it because they're defenseless against it. And that's how things really, 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 really blow up. Yeah. When you no longer have the political ability or even financial slash political ability to keep the bubble up at all. And, and, and I mean, look, think about it, the, the attrition bias in the Australian government. Like if you weren't all for pushing housing to the moon, you're gone. Yep. That's it. And so every single member has their hand in the till. It, it, it's, it actually reminds me a little bit of what happened in uh, Europe where uh, Russia came in and essentially paid off everybody to get rid of uh, European independent energy and become dependent on the Russians. And he paid off everybody and they took it. And over time, a decade, uh, uh, Europe has basically doesn't have access to energy except through Russia. And that was exactly the plan. And they all took the money and, and supported the candidates to win that would support you. And this exact same thing that happened in Australia. Yeah. It's stunning. And I lived in Australia, 2001, for six months on Bondi Beach. And it was magnificent. And I got to tell you, I, I thought the home <laughs> prices were too high then. And yeah. Mike Taylor is an idiot. Yep. <laughs> okay. Because <Yep. laughs> I could have gotten a, 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 a $300,000 shanty on Bondi and I'd be loaded. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no kidding. Bill and I certainly agree with what you're saying here, but I'm curious as to what happens on the other side of this because as you made the great point earlier on that we don't have any growth without debt. When this implodes, going back through history and looking at... You mean similar, now? Yeah, right, right. But, but, but going back now. to similar episodes in history, similar episodes in history, <laughs> people have to be convinced to borrow again, right? There is a period after which, you know, we saw this after the 30s, right? There, there was a generation of people that would not take on any debt. They simply wouldn't owe money to anybody. And if the economy doesn't grow without debt, what happens on the other side of this? Well, first, it's I want my money back. Yep. Then it's I need my money back. Then it's projects that default. Uh, low margin projects that are capital intensive that default. And then it's, you know, uh, very painful. But, but how do you kickstart things again on the other side if people... Oh, the same borrow? way we always did. You know, greed beats fear. 
Look, remember in the times before when those things have happened, people didn't have food. That's a very low probability that that's going to happen now. That was a much more capital person intensive uh, endeavor is uh, food. And that's very unlikely to happen uh, in the U.S. You know, we we have more food crafted than is possibly conceivable. So I, I, I think that, look, for the government's purposes, a, a credit problem and, and a crash and a crash in rates and a big correction and things going wrong, companies going bankrupt, it'll it'll take place over two years. And if you go back to the Great Depression, and, and one of the greatest things of the Great Depression was the reason why it happened is, is that there were absolutely no rules. And it was much like, it was like crypto, where you didn't know who owed who what. There was no records. There was no ledger. But the banks and the Fed has access to all of that. So when there's a big problem, they may not know exactly how bad it is, but they have a pretty good idea. Whereas in that generation that we've seen in the past, they didn't know how bad it was and they didn't know what to do about it. And so it was bad and then it was horrible and then it was worse. And it stayed that way for six years. And that that devastated the uh, the country. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, we also had a food problem in the Dust Bowl. And so it was just a you know a whole bunch of things happening that probably won't be able to happen. So if we do have a major credit downfall and a, and a, a big nasty snap, given that debt to GDP where we're at right now, uh, I think it'll be it'll be very quick and very severe. Hey, at least we have uh, Beyond Meat burgers now, right? We didn't have those in the '30s, so we got that going for us. Not for long. <laughs> you, yeah, you can buy the bonds. Another at like zero. Another zero in the dollar. making. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly. for, wait, I want to check and see if I have that up there. You must have yeah, it up I got it's got it up at the there. top. Right <laughs> next to right next to Fisker. There you go. There you go. So so Mike, listen, just um you said earlier on, you know, you know what to do about this. And obviously this is a way ahead. But just from from 35,000 feet for people listening, just give them a, a sense of what that means. You know, you said you said I know I know how to pivot. I know how to make money out of this. It doesn't have to be specific because it's not going to happen for a while and people need to see it. But how is our world going to change? We all know what's made money for the last 20 years, right? That's been obvious. And it's made a whole bunch of people's careers who you, as so accurately said earlier on, have no idea how to pivot. So just give people like a quick crash course, 35,000 feet, how things are going to change at the back end of this. Um, It really has to do with does the Fed pivot in the middle of the year? And that is going to be the that is going to be the linchpin and how bad is the trajectory of the economy at that time uh because because as you know frequently in recessions uh and and by the way every single recession is so obvious you can't believe it and everyone thinks it's going to be a soft landing and then and then right and everyone thinks it's going to be a soft landing and then it isn't and then it's a terrible recession and everyone says oh nobody could have seen that coming while everyone was saying, everyone's seeing it coming, so it's already priced in. So, uh, so, and usually what, by the time the Fed pivots, we actually have quite a time left to clear out some of this, these problems that they have and, and, uh, and jobless claims are still on a trajectory to get materially worse before they get better. And if you recall in 08, the Fed was pivoting in Jan, all right? You know, and talking about it before that, they were pivoting heavy in Jan, January. And uh, but guess what? Things got way worse. 
Uh, but they did hold up asset values for quite some time until about August, September. And then jobless claims really took off and then the economy imploded. So it's still pretty topsy-turvy. And I think we're probably going into a state like that. Uh, now, the question is what, if the Fed does pivot or does not. And that's really going to determine my pathway. But in the meantime, I will say this for investors, that I believe that healthcare is very likely to materially outperform. Um, and so I like healthcare. I believe that the best it, it, the best trade for this year is going to be long the two and three year on the U.S. Treasury line. Uh, hasn't moved yet, but that's okay uh, because I look at where we're at right now uh, in the fours, high fours or so, four point five, four point six uh, yield. That's the percent yield on the two year, and I look out one year. And I say to myself, how the hell is that yield higher? So if I can say that to myself, how is that possible that yield is higher? I will bet that yield will go lower by expressing that by being long in many different ways, the two-year. Now, the question is, when you have a bet and you see a bet that says, I have no idea how I lose money in this. Well, you need to be stupid big. And it's liquid enough and big enough that you can yeah, be. You can do it. Yep. 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 And that yield to go down on the two year is exactly what the Fed wants desperately. Needs. So you, That's not even wants. Needs. Needs. It's want. It's needs. So I think the two year potentially is going to be, and I have the two year on in a levered fashion. I am probably two to five times levered long the uh two year and it depends where and when and how i'll do it but but for most of this year i think that i can predict my largest position will be net long uh the two year and honestly i want to be like I, I, and i'm i'm expressing uh, my shorts in other ways like i'm i'm short uh leverage loans because i have no idea how they get out of this and there's a whole bunch of equity products that are linked to uh these leverage loans um, uh, uh, let's see, ARCC being one of them, everyone can look that up. That's lever that's up to their eyeballs and leveraged loans. And it pays out like a REIT about a 10% yield. And so I have no idea how that goes up. <laughs> and I only imagine how it goes down dramatically and ferociously and violently. It'll be a violent move because the investors that are in like an ARCC, they're looking for that 10% yield. But they don't know that there might be that yield's going to get destroyed and the assets underneath are going to you have no collateral in right. this. You know, these are leveraged loans that's backing it up. You got nothing. It's not 30 cents on the dollar. It's 0, 0.0 on the dollar. They don't know that. That's in fine print. But you can sell, which is not what you can do with many of these private wealth products. Yeah. So that's those are the kind of things uh, how I'm set up. And then uh, my terrible mistake is that I have faith in certain companies with execution and doing it well. And guess what? None of that stuff will work in my kind of economy that I have in my head. But I'll still have that crap on and I'll lose millions, but I'll have shorts against it. So I'll make millions there. And if I if I had to predict what the end of my year next year is going to look like, I will have made a lot of money on the two year. And that's probably net net where I'm going to make most of the money because it's cheap. 
It's yeah. cheap to put on. It's cheap to put on lever. Meaning if you want to go out there and say, oh, well, I'm going to short. Uh, so I'm going to be, I got my ISDA account. That's for people out there who have $30 million or more in assets. You can get an ISDA account if you talk real nice. And then you can buy CDS. On, uh, that's a credit default swap. That's insurance on junk bonds, which I think will also work. But you're going to pay a fortune for them. So what I'm looking for is something really, really cheap that doesn't cost a lot to own that I can be levered up in, and I don't know how it doesn't work. You uh, had mentioned your plan to get long the end. Were you only going to get long it for a trade, and thus it already happened, or do you think it still works higher in the environment we're talking about? I think it works. I just wanted to be levered up for that single dramatic move right. that gotcha. I, pre I, I predicted, and I was so mad about it because... I, I, this was on my list of things for going to happen this year and it's going to happen in January and nobody sees it coming. And I was literally going to start putting on the trade that week because you got to do it a month in advance, you know, and then boom. And I'm just, oh, that's the worst. Yeah. So I, I, I feel you. I wrote about that exact thing on the Sunday, the day before oh, that's I published right. it on yeah, the Sunday, did. the day before oh, they you did? moved the damn goalpost. Yeah, I, I I mean, it, but I think you're absolutely right, Mike, because if you have the end of yield curve control, if you have the BOJ being forced to put rates right, the yen has got a long, long way it can move, right? Because it's a real market. It, it can take inflows. But, you know, um, they can't do it. That's the thing. They can't do it. No, but they can screw it up and try, right? Well, that's <laughs> I mean, what I know. My view was is that it would happen just like they did. And they'd say, hey, we're trying. And then that ends, like, it's like, a, you know, the wet fart in church. It's just, just gone, just gone. Didn't happen. Nope, just kidding. Uh, because they're at beyond the point of no return, where if they actually had a remote, naturally discovered price of capital in Japan, just for a second, right? The only parallel disaster that I could say is parallel to that happening would be China saying, well, we're so confident in our currency that we're going to open up all of our capital controls. And anyone in China can get their money out now. That yeah, would right. be the equivalent. Yeah, that right. would be the equivalent. Oh, by the way, China's taking over the world. Just wanted to tell you. So. The, the, only, the only thing I'd, I'd say about that in terms of Japan is what they do have going for them are the trillions that the life insurers have sent overseas over the last however long, right? That there's all kinds of pressure that can be brought to bear for them to come back in. And there's a baton passing here that we want you to come back and buy JGBs. So there, there is a way for the Japanese government to fund themselves through repatriation of capital. I, I would think it seems to me we're a little bit yeah. away from that yet. But if they do continue with this, they can strong arm some serious pools of capital to come home. Yeah, but then they'd miss their target goals. Hey, those can be changed. Was it? If you don't, if you don't like my principles, I have others. <laughs> yeah. Well, they'll miss their goals and you, you, you do, they are, you know, a lot of pension products and... Yeah, there's some political issue around that. But but in my experience, at the very end, the government will save themselves. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and exactly. And I'm reminded of this. And this is what got me going on the uh, benchmarks and the Treasury. And I'll tell you the event that really got me it wasn't 08. It was it was Greece. It was Greece, 2011, 2012, 2010, when uh, Greece was insolvent. They wanted to leave the union and go back to their currency. 
and uh, and the and the central bank or the government wouldn't let them. In fact, it was so severe that they wouldn't let them that they would have rolled troops in in order to secure the state so that they could not default to what became the central bank because the central bank essentially ended up owning all the Greek debt or most of it. Yeah. And it's still the case today. And what really, 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 really got me was the CDS. Because if you recall correctly, they uh, defaulted on the bonds and said, no, 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 we're not defaulting. We're going to give you other bonds with different terms. That's exactly right. And you're going to enjoy that. And then the hedge funds who own the CDS were like, pardon, (laughs) you can't give me some other bond with totally different terms, and that's not a default on the original bond. And then they said, let's take it to an independent court. That's right. And so they took it to the independent (laughs) court and unanimous. No default. Total default. Yep. But so when when the push comes to shove, the government will literally pay off everybody and pressure everybody, even if you're on the Supreme Court, to save themselves. And that that tell I learned so much about central banks uh, going through that. I was and that was one of my, my most difficult years that I've ever had. You thought, oh, it was hard. No, it was during that that European crisis, because I looked at all the facts as a young man, because that was what, like, what was that, like 10, 12 years ago? 10, 12 years ago, yeah. Uh, when I was way back at 40. And um, and I I didn't, I was still learning. I was still learning a lot how this stuff works. And I was counting up all the votes. I mean, I spent endless hours and I was like, as a scientist, I'm like, oh my God, Greece is absolutely going to default. Or, oh my God, these CDS are good. And people didn't understand what that meant. It meant that essentially every European bank would go insolvent because they'd have to honor these CDS and and pay back all these hedge funds, billions upon billions of dollars that they didn't have. And it wasn't like 1 billion or 10 billion. It was like 50 plus. And uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be so horribly disruptive. Europe's going to implode and I had a, I had that year, whatever year it was, I had a, I think I was up 2% on the year because of that, because I got the entire trade wrong, horrifically wrong, because I didn't understand that the facts don't matter when the government's trying to save itself. Yeah, it's so true. And that was, don't forget, that was the same year of the downgrade of the US Treasury too, 2012, right? It was all, it was 11, 12, right, it was all right, at the same right. time, right? So we had all that stuff going on. And you're right, none of it mattered at the end of the day. And then we had the haircuts on the bank accounts in Cyprus, right? The bail-ins. You know, again, you're right. When push comes to shove and it's save ourselves or do the right thing, there's only one solution yeah. to that every time. And so your point on Japan turning around and doing extreme things to save itself is, is potentially valid. But I will cite the ongoing nagging disaster of productivity. And that if you continue to grow and grow and grow the government and the payout to uh, essentially you're the kingmaker, you will have become more and more and more of a command economy. And you have incredibly unproductive investments forever, just like what China is contending with now. China has no wealth at all. 
All of people's savings in China is literally in housing, which is a crumbling asset. It's vacant housing that is unneeded, unwanted, and the government has just forced them into, you can buy stocks and bonds, you can buy private wealth products that you can't get out of, or you can buy property. And that's it. And they have basically forced a uh, gigantic bubble of assets that people don't need. And now they're, they're dealing with the consequences of that. Not terribly different than Australia. Uh, very different circumstances, though, on, on the flows of capital and why. It's not captive. Yeah, yeah. It's voluntary. But everybody was in on it. And now it's unwinding. And it's going to be incredibly painful, just like what's going on in China here is, is very likely terminal. From here, you've virtually integrated all the independent business into the Politburo now, and they're going to be the absolute kingmaker in a command economy. And I don't understand how China ever gets out of this. I think it is just not only that, this year, the population turned negative. They have negative population growth. And what, 90 million plus vacant homes that are speculative? I mean, just... That's a third of the American population in homes that's just vacant and crumbling, useless. And, and this is their plan. So it, it doesn't make any sense. And China's a, I mean, if we once we look down the road 10 years from now, I think that China is just a halfway to the Stone Age. <laughs> Mike, let me before we wrap up, there's something I want to ask you about. Given everything we've talked about, I'm very curious to know what your thoughts on gold are. Because the environment we've described is a pretty good setup for gold. I'm just curious, is it something you don't pay any attention to, you care about, you don't care about? What are your thoughts on it? I pay attention to it. I have also never made money trading gold. And, 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 and I don't understand, like, maybe I will. Maybe, maybe this is that moment where I'm like, aha, it has to happen. No, nobody makes money trading it. You make money owning it. Oh, you don't. You, you hang oh, on okay, to your money you do? Owning it. That's okay. it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I've been so proficient at uh, trading stocks, long and short, um, for a long time that uh, I've never really had to be that close to it or figure it out. Right, right. Because I've always had companies that are going to die or thrive. And I could always put those spreads on and do that. It takes a lot more work, right? Uh, gold, you got one asset, it's one trade, you, you put a ton of money into it. I have a, you know, I probably have 70 positions on the book. They're all wandering children. And I spend 12 hours a day, minimum every day of the week following and doing this stuff. And, and it's not really because it's my job. It's my obsession. Right? Yeah. This is like, I can't believe that I make money doing this just to play this gigantic video game. It is exhausting at times, but it's incredibly exciting to watch this unfold over a, my entire lifetime as a narrative. It's a soap opera that never ends. It's like all my children squared. I'm really upset that they took that off the air like 10 years ago. My grandma watched it for 50 years every day. So, it, but it's a great story. And I, I don't get that with gold. That's all because the, for me, there's like not enough to watch. There's just so many other trades, right. right? I mean, look at, look at coal, like look at coal right now. I'll just give an example. Um, we have an energy disaster. We have no mining and and uh, China's turning back on. Coal has gone to the moon. There's a whole bunch of coal stocks in the U.S. that are literally going to earn half of their market cap or more 
in the next year. And nobody's allowed to invest in these companies. (laughs) What's that? I said, you're not allowed to own those. (laughs) Well, and nobody can invest in them. In fact, they just sold off this week because a whole bunch of people bought it in their fund, but they can't let anyone know they bought it in their fund when they market uh, tomorrow. So they've actually sold off like all 15% in the past week because of ESG and everyone worried about being woke instead of making money for their clients. So what will happen in the first week of January, all these things are going to rip right back because they're going to smoke numbers. I can put on meaningfully levered trades around that and and with not a ton of downside and a lot of upside and and, and make a lot more money. And that's that's really the big reason why I really yeah. have entertained gold. But now that you bring it up to me, now I have to do it. I'm going to immediately I'm going to be calling Peter Schiff and uh, he'll tell me what to do. I think we know what Peter Schiff will tell. I can save you a dime on the phone call. I'll tell you what he's going but, to tell you. To but do. in all honesty, in all honesty, <laughs> no, so it's a one eight hundred phone call for him. So, <laughs> but in in all honesty, one of, one of the downsides of gold is, especially if you're a bottoms up analyst that can marry the macro and and root around in securities and, and do what you do, is it's almost impossible to get an edge in, because all the gold that's ever been mined is still in existence. And yes, if it's a financial asset, it's a small amount relative to all the financial assets of problems. But it's very difficult to develop any sort of an edge. You can with some of the mining companies, because if you know the right things, the right people, you can figure stuff out. But that's been my experience. I've defaulted to it, gold and silver, a lot in the last 20 years because of my particular uh, dissatisfaction with central banks and their policies and all this other crap. But one of the great frustrations is, is there's no edge. And it cracks me up that so many people think that they have an edge when there's none to be had. So you just might as well admit that to yourself and say, okay, how am I going to play the game knowing I really don't have that much of an edge? And that's that's my two cents. That's really what happened to me because I have tried it before in 20 years and I could never, ever any edge that I thought I had. I was an idiot. That's what I came to the conclusion on is that. I cannot figure it out one way or the other over the long term. If they're going to, if they're look, there's a decent probability that we have a, um, a debt to GDP disaster happening where we have excesses of the past 15 years getting eaten up in 18 months. And then on the other side of that, they're going to print so much money. You can't believe it. And that's, a distinct possibility. And in that instance, gold is going to go to the moon. So, so maybe and, the rule of thumb is to wait for your 100 IQ bell to go off vis-a-vis the gold, and then then it won't be that hard. It might. It might. Um, I'm just hopeful that I can just keep doing this and picking stocks and, and bonds and things like that, because I don't know. That's what I know. So... Oh, by the way, I, I do healthcare predominantly. If you wanted to talk about any biotech stock that tickles your fancy, <laughs> I learned a long time ago that biotech is a, totally over my pay grade. I dabbled a few times, and it's like it didn't matter what I tried, whether I was short them or long them. I had a buddy who was a doc and a biotech guy, and he kept calling me with all these shorts, and they were you know just disaster companies. But we we're in the moment in time where they all went up. Didn't matter what it was. So um, good for you to be able to slay that dragon. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, you, you look back at 20 years and you say, oh, that's OK. But you look forward to the next six months and you just say, I'm going to die. 
<laughs> so, and that's really, that's really how you survive it. You know, every month is going to, every future month is going to be my worst month, no matter what has happened over the past 20 years. And if you simply go into that, that view, that mindset, I suppose it keeps you looking over your shoulder enough to persevere. Mike, listen, um, I'm going to ask you to make us two promises. One, you'll come back on the end game again before you die, because I think this is a, this is a conversation that, as you say, is going to play out. And it's going to be fascinating to see how your thinking evolves, because you have such a big framework through which to look at it. And secondly, I'm going to push you to come back and talk about healthcare stocks. I think that's a whole different conversation. Um, yeah. And I'm really, and yeah, I'm really keen be, to talk about be them, fun. because I, yeah. I think that'll be a really interesting thing. Yeah, to I do, do but, too. I, I yeah. think that'd be great. But, um, but well, look, it's look, been for, a pleasure. Look, for now, just give people all the places they can follow your work because, you know, I, I know you're very active on Twitter and the stuff you put out is fantastic. So let people know where they can find out more about you and uh, Pink and all the things you do. Sure. Uh, I'm the portfolio manager of the Pink uh, Fund, the Shares for the Cure. It's a healthcare fund. The ETF is Pink. Uh, I'm not allowed to talk, I think, any more than that about yeah. it. Uh, but I draw your attention to the Simplify website, which is the parent fund. And you can see uh, all the names that I'm involved in. It's updated real time. And you can see the performance versus uh, various benchmarks. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. The profits of the fees associated with the fund uh, goes to the Susan Komen Foundation for Breast Cancer, as does my compensation. And um, and I, I can say that I'm a material owner in the fund. So I do have quite a bit of skin in the game. Um, yes, so I can say that, I think. Uh, <laughs> compliance people will call you otherwise. And, right. uh, uh, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, of course, I'm like literally looking up my handle. It's uh, Mike at Mike underscore Taylor. T-A-Y-L-O-R, 1972, the year I was born. And uh, yeah, and I just uh, I just ramble on with my thoughts and the things that I'm seeing and a handful of ideas. Uh, but I, I don't take money for anything that I do. Uh, the only money that I make is uh, from my personal account, um, just trading it and uh, everything else I do for free. And you can see me on various programs, uh, heckling, pontificating, praying. So... <laughs> Mike, listen, this has been a real, real pleasure. And I'm going to hold you that. We're going to have you back to talk about this as it unfolds because it's, uh, what a great time to be alive, huh? Oh, it is. It sure is. Thank you very much. You guys are just wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Wow. That was awesome. That was really fun. It's interesting that, you know, we started this a couple of years ago thinking about the end game. And now we're we're in the end game. Yeah, we just don't really know quite how the end game ends. But I think this was the most endgame oriented discussion we've had about just that thing. So um, it was it was really fun to explore this. Well, it's funny, you know, that old trope about, you know, this isn't the endgame, but you can see it from here. And that it feels like, you know, that's where we are. We are in the yeah. middle of the endgame now. It is actually playing out. And, and we're, we're too close to it now to see what it is. And that's why in these conversations, it's so important for us to try and step back and take a broader view of it and try and get it all in context. Because... It's happening so fast now, Bill, that, you know, the, the wheels could come off this thing really, really easy. Yes. And, I, and I think yes. that was so interesting about what Mike was saying about what happens if those wheels do. And this idea of a collateral shortage, to me, mm -hmm. is ultimately perhaps that's like all four wheels falling off. Because if, if you can't trust collateral, the entire system is built on top of good collateral. Well, when you say it that way, look at the little sneak peek 
we got in Great Britain with the Bank of England um, right. a couple months ago. And one of the points that our good friend James Aiken has made is similar to that about collateral problems. So I think, as Mike sort of noted, we're getting close to the end game. It's not possible to have a view yet of what the other side starts to look like until we see what do they do. Yes. Uh, Mike thinks and he hopes that Powell will pivot later. My low opinion of the Fed makes me think they'll get spooked and pivot sooner. Uh, You might be in the middle somewhere. I don't know. But we don't know. But what we have to do is we have to say, okay, if they don't pivot, here's what's liable to play out. And if they do, other things are going to happen. And we have to kind of be ready to move in whichever direction it looks like it's going. At least that's what I've what I've sort of. Conclusion yeah, no, I think that's to. exactly the point. And it's funny, uh, when I heard Mike say, I think they'll pivot early in May, <laughs> yeah, every, I was... <laughs> everything I read tells me that everybody's offside. If that's early, everybody yeah. is assuming, and uh, and there's no reason why you wouldn't. We've been conditioned to believe this to be true, that they will pivot at the first sign of trouble. So the fact they haven't already is amazed an awful lot of people who've been caught offside by it. And every day that goes by and they don't pivot is just a day closer to when they do in most people's minds. Well, but one thing is, to be overly simplistic about it, this year has been basically about rates rising and multiple compression. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some companies have been blown up. And now we can start pricing in margin compression and recession, but we're also credit problems. Bingo. And like he talked about, if BREIT, you know, if they have to throw up a gate right away in the beginning of the new year and these others start to pile up and then it spills over to the BOE, we didn't even talk about what a basket case Europe is. No. And then next thing you know, we have a financial problem and everyone's hair's on fire. I'm pretty sure the Fed's not going to be as tough as they think they're going to be able to be, but that's yeah. just me. My opinion of the Fed is so low, it's hard to be lower. So. <laughs> no, no, exactly right. You, you are everybody's low opinion benchmark as far as it comes to the I world. got the undercovered. You have, you have. All right, my friend. Well, right. Listen, it's been a fantastic year. These conversations have just been magnificent. I've loved every single one of them. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for the fact that you and I get a chance to do these and, and it, you speak, give up your valuable time to sit here with me goofing around trying to figure out what the hell's going on so thank you mate yeah and thank you for being such a great foil to do this i mean i mean this really is fun i'd, I'd almost be willing to pay you to do it well almost. Listen, we, 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 <laughs> well listen we, we're forgetting the people you have to thank the most the people out there listening because yes uh, that's true believe it or not there are people that listen to you and i goofing around and fumbling around in the dark for solutions so to each and every one of you thank you we'll be back in the new year with uh, another episode of The Game Game. I don't know who we'll be speaking to, but I guarantee it'll be fun. In the meantime, uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you don't do so already. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And where am I? You are still at Flat Cap, I hope, because that's where I always come looking for you. (laughs) Okay, mate. Happy New Year. This has been great. Happy New Year to one and all. See you, buddy. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.